Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, Dominic Nichols and I discuss the latest news in the military and diplomatic spheres, including possible Russian advances. Plus, we ask three experts for their insights on possible outcomes of this war for Russia. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 11th of January, day 322. And to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, as I say, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols. I started by asking Dom about reports that Russian forces have captured Solodar, a town north of Bakhmut, and the perception that this marks a significant moment in the battle for the east of Ukraine. Well, hi, Francis. Hi, everybody. It's significant that, I mean, I don't know if that's the word I'd use. It's been very confused, very active, a huge amount of violence and a lot of mixed messaging. So let's, let's zone in on the Donbass, so east of Ukraine. We've been talking about the, the city of Bakhmut for, for a number of weeks now um, and saying that this is the battlefield that Russia, and in particular the Wagner group of mercenaries, has chosen to make its name. So Wagner, we know Yevgeny Prigozhin, who runs Wagner, finances it. He's got political ambition, or at least likes to curry favour with Putin. Um, curry? Oh, I should have done something there. Putin's chef. Anyway, um, he likes to see himself as a more credible military force than than the Russian armed forces, the, the Russian ground forces at any rate. So they've chosen to fight in Bakhmut or fight for Bakhmut as a way of showing what they can do. Now, we've said before that, that Bakhmut itself is, has only, only limited operational significance. Of course, every metre of ground is valuable and Ukraine doesn't want to pay for any of it. But they have in the past shown... Uh, a willingness and a tactical nous to trade space for time, so to to re- withdraw, retreat, to make a tactical withdrawal. But um, Bakhmut's not gone that way. It, it has been very heavily contested. 
uh, not yet not encircled. And then about seven k's to the northeast of Akmut is the town of Solidar that we've been speaking about for the last couple of weeks because this is under extreme pressure from Russia. And I just set that context because we're going to talk talk more about what's been happening on the ground in a, in a moment. But but I just there are always going to be reversals in war. There's there's I mean it's extremely violent. There are going to be there's going to be ground taken by by Russia. There's going to be ground taken by retaken by Ukraine. The, the front line is moving backwards and forwards. And I'm not saying that that these these places don't matter because Ukraine is is expending a lot of blood and treasure moving into these areas and trying to hold on to these areas and reclaim these areas. So, of course, I'm not going to be so glib as to say the ground ground doesn't matter. But Solidar has very, very limited, very limited operational significance. And like I say it, it's just a it's a route to Bakhmut. Now, it's easy to say it's easy to draw a map with big arrows sweeping across it and say, oh, if they take Solidar, then they can take Bakhmut. And if they take Bakhmut, then they can take Kramatorsk. And if they do that, then they're off and, and you know it's all over. It's very easy to do that. And that's just not the reality on the ground that's not what's been happening for the last uh well last 10 months is it so so we just got to got to put everything in context when we talk about what's what's happening here and having said that it is a very confusing situation so uh Yevgeny Prigozhin Wagner he released a photo of himself in one of the salt mines there's a lot of salt mines under under Solodar thought to be a couple of hundred kilometers of tunnels and of course ownership of those tunnels will, will give either side a, a tactical advantage uh, i mean not it's not a it's not as if you lose the tunnel and then the 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 baddies pop up behind you and oh my god i didn't know they were there uh, you know you know where these tunnels go they're actually very easy to defend because they're fixed routes you you literally know where they are and where and where they go and there's not very uh, you can't deviate from the route once you you're going down them so ownership of the tunnels themselves is um is is beneficial of course gives overhead cover if nothing else uh an area for let's say a field hospital or some areas you can you can rest in relative peace but in terms of thinking that the, these are routes that you can suddenly sweep through and 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 surprise the enemy from behind it just doesn't really work like that however it is it is a a, a tactical advantage to hold these things Yevgeny Prigozhin took a photograph of himself with um some Wagner fighters and a tank in in a mine. This went out on social media. Um, it was really, I mean, it was a it was probably released by his by his press service and used to claim that Solidar was fully under Russian control. Then a number of people on social media said, "Well, hang on, that doesn't look anything like the salt mines that I know from Solidar." The, you know, various various voices and and posting a number of photos of those mines. And then some other, there were some other images released where those, to be fair to the, um, the comment on social media saying, I, didn't, I don't think they are the sort of mine. Some people said, well, actually, this, this, this could be. It just adds to the confusion. But um, a spokesman for Ukraine's eastern group of forces uh, told Ukrainian TV that, that, that the town was not in, in Russian hands. They said Russia does, Russia does not control Solidar. Said more details will be coming out later from the general staff. We have had no further details formally from Ukraine, um, but uh, worthy worthy to know. In the voice note that Prigozhin attached to this press uh, this press image, he did say. Well, he insisted again that this was a, a victory for Wagner and uh, and a Wagner exclusive battle. And as our friend and colleague here, at the Telegraph, Roland Oliphant, he said he he put a tweet out this morning saying, "Well, actually, that comment pointedly." Uh, a dig at the Russian armed forces is Yevgeny saying, um, saying that, that Wagner are the only 
uh, ground holding unit or units able to able to advance. So there's there's it comes back to what we've been saying recently about this this tension within the security architecture in Russia. Now the Russian army itself officially said that there's a fierce battle for Solodar and it's ongoing, countering Wagner's earlier claim that it had controlled the town. And the Kremlin then followed up saying that it was important not to rush to declare victory. And Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov, who we've we've spoken of often on the on the pod. He said, quote, let's not rush. Let's wait for official announcements. I mean, he's the spokesman for the Kremlin, so it doesn't get doesn't get much more official than that. So if even the Kremlin is reluctant to say, yes, Russia has taken control of Soldar, then I think we should just treat everything very, very cautiously. Any news coming out of there. Um, uh, Peskov did, of course, say that there is, quote, positive dynamic and advances and tactical successes are very important. So it makes, you know, I'd agree agree with them um, well certainly about the tactical successes but you know the kremlin are not are not saying that solidar is in is in russian hands then we saw a ukrainian soldier on cnn uh, who said um quote no one will tell you how many dead and wounded there are because no one knows for sure not a single person not at the headquarters not anywhere positions are being taken and retaken constantly what was our house today become Wagner's the next day in solidar no one counts the dead so a Ukrainian soldier there saying that it's a very fluid environment. It's very confused. Nobody knows for sure exactly um, who's in control. British MOD said yesterday that um, Russian troops and Wagner mercenaries are likely in control. They're, they're quite likely in control of most of Solidar. So, you know, a very confused picture. It is extremely violent. It does look as if Russia has made some gains here the first gains they've they've made in months and the first gains since those ridiculous referenda earlier you know take supposedly annexing the the four oblasts since since then all Russia's done is go backwards so this is this looks like it might be a tactical move forward for Russia but i just put it in the context of it is a very confused situation and ultimately what operational um, advantage does it does it offer to whichever side holds Solidar? I would suggest limited. Uh, better better just let you get a breath there. <laughs> come in, uh, come back at me, Francis. Well, thanks, Dom. I, I, as you say, I think there's some big questions about the strategic significance of of Solidar. And as you and I were talking about before we went on air, I think it's really interesting it, your point that you were making that we we've questioned now for weeks the strategic significance of Bakhmut. And if Solidar is only strategically significant in order to take Bakhmut, then it just speaks to how you know in the grand picture, uh, irrelevant one could argue that Solidar is from the Russian perspective. But I think that perhaps another way of thinking about this, and this has been posited by some people this morning. This is an attempt by Russia to have some kind of symbolic victory or perception of a victory to start off the year, particularly on the back of that uh, HIMARS strike, which killed what we believe could be hundreds of Russian soldiers by the Ukrainians um, in the new year. Just wonder whether you had any thoughts on that idea that this is more of of an attempt to have some kind of propaganda victory rather than an actual military one. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, we are clearly not... um, Ukrainian apologists here. We're not a mouthpiece for the Ministry of Defence of Ukraine and all the rest of it. Um, so we, we we do not shy away from saying when Russia has has made advances. So so yes, I think there's a huge propaganda effort here from from Russia. But we shouldn't take away that it, this does look as if it it is ground that's being uh, that's being taken by Russia. Having said that, yeah, I, I agree with all your points you just made. There, I mean, Russia has not had a a military advantage, a military victory to. To put in front of uh, the the people for some time, you had those strikes over in the recent weeks, you know, over Christmas. 
we've seen the um, the strikes, the, this new strategy of going for Ukraine's critical national infrastructure, which doesn't seem to have worked. I mean, it's it's knocking out power stations, some of which are, are put back online fairly quickly, others less uh, less quickly. But the spirit of the people is not broken. So the new strategy doesn't seem to work. I'll talk a little bit later. I was in a in a background brief last night with a, a Western official um, who spoke spoke about this. But 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 the Western official was saying that um, that that the, the strategy is not working in Russia. Quote needs to go back to the drawing board. But I'll say more about that a bit later. So yes, they're they're very keen. Russia is very keen. Putin is very keen. Yevgeny Prigozhin is very keen to hold up a victory for all sorts of different reasons and to all sorts of different audiences to say that there is a victory here. So, yes, of, of course, of course, they are going to going to say whatever they can, whatever whatever uh, is available to them, photographs in the mines, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, I think there is, there's, there's a massive drive for a propaganda victory um, for in its own end, because that's been a long time coming but also to deflect from a lot of the other criticism that um, is just starting to leak out from Russian society about the way the rest of the war has been waged. Well, before we turn to uh, your summary of your uh, meeting with that official, what's ne- uh, what else is going on in the, in the military space, Dom? Yeah, so, OK, so, so yesterday, um, Kharkiv, so northeast of the country, Ukraine's second city, uh, that, was, that was hit. Uh, Russian uh, missile attacks were hit, uh, uh, sorry, landed in Kharkiv. Now, Kharkiv has, has taken, it bore the brunt in the early weeks of the war, and it has been periodically uh, hit again throughout, um, especially since, that, uh, since the Ukrainian forces managed to push Russia out of there last September, really sort of that charge east and push the line back about 40 or 50 k's. But um, Kharkiv was hit again yesterday. Why do we mention that? Well, this this came just hours after a surprise visit by the German foreign minister with her Ukrainian counterpart. So we've seen this again from from Russia when there's a large visit from a from a um, either a Western leader or a leader from outside the country or a leader of an international body, such as we saw it with Antonio Guterres, the head of the UN, when he when he visited Kiev uh, months ago. Uh, yeah, Russia just just bung some missiles in. I mean, it, it achieves very little. We we had no news of casualties from this strike, but it just I, I don't know what they think they want to do. I mean, does, does the German foreign minister turn around and go, "Oh wow, I didn't know they had missiles and the capability to do that"? I mean, if they if they wanted to actually if if they were even if they knew that, that Germany's foreign minister was going and wanted to try and target her specifically, I, I, which I don't think they would do because that would be extremely provocative and they know it. Um, so this is just sort of more more belligerence, but um, but it happened. We should mark it and move on. Um, another thing I should, should mention, it's been confirmed by a couple of Pentagon officials to CNN that the US is going to start training about 100 Ukrainian troops on the Patriot missile system from next week in Oklahoma, so in, in the US. Uh, training program is going to take place at Fort Sill in Oklahoma. I don't know if any of our listeners do, then please get in touch. I'd love to know more more about this place. I, I read that it's uh, one of the main bases for U.S. training on um, on air defense systems. Uh, one of four basic training locations home to the services field artillery school. So if anyone's ever been there, please, uh, please let us know. Now, this training is going to take months. Patriot is a very um, complex and sophisticated system. Uh, it is it, it was notable a couple of weeks ago or when it, uh, yeah just before christmas when the us agreed to send patriot so it's going to take months before these things are are, are operational and um, so it's not going to impact the course of the war in the short term probably not going to impact the course of the war over the rest of the winter and possibly even the spring um but uh, you know it is happening it's significant that it's happening in the us um 
Kremlin grumbled that this sort of further further involves the US in the war and is more proof that it's that Russia is fighting NATO in the US. I mean, that that's hogwash because there's been training throughout uh, Europe, in Germany, for example, on some of the uh, some some other systems, and there's uh, the ongoing training in the UK to train uh, of basic infantry training. So it's not unusual for Ukrainians to be trained outside of the country on uh, on some of the, the Western donated kit. But last night, um, Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Pat Ryder, he, he told reporters that it'd be about 90 or 100 Ukrainian soldiers will be in, in Oklahoma uh, as early as next week. Um, didn't say didn't say exactly how long it would take, but said it, it typically takes up for a, up to a year for US soldiers uh, to be trained on it. Um, however, he said it might be, quote, several months for Ukrainians. So they'll probably do a, a slightly shorter program or 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 squeeze it, you know, make uh, really make um, fill the days. Uh, but it's going to take several months. Um, but significant. I mean, this, this obviously, as soon as they announced, since the US announced that they were going to be gifting Patriot, of course, you ought to train the people. So it's the next logical step from that. It's not a massive, massive escalatory step in any in any uh, shape or form. But it's uh, it, it's worth noting. And like I say, if anyone's been there, Port, Fort Sill in Oklahoma, then please, uh, please let us know all about it. Just wanted to touch on something you were saying there, Don, because obviously in the last couple of days, there's been a lot of conversations here in Britain about the Challenger 2s. And there have been some who have said that, oh, it would take months to train Ukrainian soldiers to use these new tanks. And uh, we published a piece in the paper today from Hamish de Breton Gordon, of course, a regular on this podcast, who was saying that actually that misunderstands the fact that if you've already got a tank crew, that it may only take them a matter of days to to learn how to use a, a Challenger 2. You're a former tanky. I think that's the right term. Uh, I think it is anyway. Uh, what's, uh, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I've been called worse. Um, yeah, I mean, it is it is like learning a new language. If you if you're already of a of the mindset and you work with armor, um, you work with vehicles, you work with armor. And specifically, if you work with tanks, then it's not it's not a massive, a massive leap. Now, Challenger 2, for example, the, the handset physically, the, the thing that the gunner and the commander um, would have to to fire the main gun is uh, was based on the old um, Xbox controller and that's not just because the um, young men and women who uh, so I'm just looking at Twitter. I'll mention that in a second I've just got a message there that there's no decision yet been taken about uh, Britain's Challenger 2 um, sorry yes yeah, so game uh, the Xbox controllers this is not only because the generation of people who were joining the um, the, the forces when Challenger 2 came in had sort of played played a lot of games but also because it makes ergonomic sense the way the human hand works and the and the thumb and all the rest of it so you know the the this was a, a tank that was very much designed to to uh, be easy to operate now maintaining it is a, is another another question entirely that it has like all these things a, a fairly hefty logistical tail but the actual operating it no once you're once you're proficient and you understand how these things work and you have a sort of a feel for armored armored warfare and vehicles and and the crew importantly working together so Challenger 2 has a has a crew of four, a driver, then a gunner sitting behind and slightly above the gunner is the is the commander, and then to the left of both of those people in the main turret itself um, is the also I mean they're all in the turret, but over the the other side of the turret is the is the loader slash operator, the, an individual that loads the gun and operates all the radios and, and makes the T and all that kind of stuff. So um, working together as a crew is arguably one of the biggest challenges of armoured warfare. But if you already do that in any shape or form, 
um, then taking those skills, you have those in, those personal skills in the, in the way you interact and coordinate and cooperate and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's not it's not a it's not a massive leap. So I think yes, it would take some time, but it it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be um, a, a massive uh, a massive task. I don't think. I mean, my troop leaders course was six months, but that included tactics and driving and maintenance and gunnery and and all the other bits and bobs. Um, so if you if you come to it with a degree of knowledge already and you can shave off some of the some bits here and there then um, then yes you're you're looking i would say two or three months really to have a have a, a competent crew nothing nothing much more than that got to got to ask Tom you just said there that uh, you've got an alert that's come through no doubt from one of your contacts that uh, no decision yet has been made on challenger 2 we heard the same yesterday what's the significance of the delay do you think well i mean yeah, we've got to be cautious again. A lot of caution today. Um, when you say delay, I don't. I don't think we should characterise it as a as a delay. This is a live debate. There is a. I think something's going on here in Europe that that, that, that surprises me, and I'd be interested in your thoughts. There seems to me to be a um, a diplomatic boon for whoever's going to take first mover advantage. What I mean by that is there's, there's all this talk at the moment about supplying tanks, big main battle tanks, the U.S. Abrams, um, the French Leclerc. British Challenger, German Leopards to to Ukraine, and there's also a, a debate about well, who's leading the charge in Europe? Who's the biggest the biggest supporter? And is Britain dropping off? And etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And I'm surprised that no one's really sort of just gone for it. And it seems to be that everyone's waiting for someone else to make the move, and then they will also chime in with their with with the, the promise of of vehicles. Um, I don't know what the why anyone is not seizing the initiative, like I say, sort of first mover advantage in the diplomatic terms. But um, I, I had heard that a decision was going to be made today about Charlie 2 and, and just got a, a message there saying that it's not yet been made. Now, that you know, doesn't mean that it's, it's not going to be later on. And of course, it also doesn't mean that even if a decision is made today that we will be told. Um, the next meeting of the Ramstein contact group, so the big uh, US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin's led group about military donors that's due next week the end of the end of next week so perhaps a decision is going to be made today and it won't be announced until the end of next week so i just don't know but but if i if i hear anything of course we'll uh, we'll let you know but i'm surprised you know francis i mean what do you think is going on here why the political caution and and am i am i overstating it because i'm not massively hot on the old politics side of life but you know is there first mover advantage in the di- diplomatic sphere well, I would argue that there certainly would be. And I, I agree with your analysis that I think that there are certain countries now that are very strongly lined up and are in agreement that it's only a matter of time when these tanks or when these more high tech weapons will be delivered. But none of them seem to be the want to be the ones that, that, that send them first. I would include Germany and France in that, Britain, of course, and, and Finland as well. Perhaps there are conversations that are taking place behind closed doors that we are not privy to that is relevant to this. No doubt the Americans also have have deep thinking on this, that they want to be part of the conversations about the timing, about what weapons are being delivered, how that associates with what they're sending. So it may, you know, we're, we're painting it very much as, you know, why, why are they delaying? What's what's going on? You know, but actually it, there may be very high level conversations taking place, even with the Ukrainians, of course, as well, about this and about the most effective way of communicating when, uh, you know, when the moment comes, if it comes, it has to be said if at this stage, um, then, then the best ways of doing that to deliver also a, 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 a belief low for uh, Russian morale as well. That's These are all going to be part of the conversations. But I do agree that I think that 
Um, there is a serious question to be asked here, which is that uh, any country that is that is delaying now, why are they doing so? I mean, time is pressing, I think, in many ways, um, because, as you say, this will take some time to train uh, the Ukrainians to be able to use these weapons. That will be the same for um, the equivalents in, in Germany and el- of, of Germany and, and, and elsewhere, their equipment. So... Uh, if we, as we understand, there are going to be offensives and counteroffensives taking place in February and March, then time is of the essence. You know, we may only have a matter of weeks and every day counts. So I think it's it's frustrating for those and certainly from Ukrainian commentators perspective, seeing the delay. And I've, I've seen countless messages for months now of people saying that, you know, it's desperate times and there needs to be unleash the leopards is what you often see with regard to the uh, German tanks um, on, on Twitter and elsewhere. And and I think but I think it's also just worth underlining how far things have moved. I mean, you and I will remember, Don, when we were first reporting on this war, how hesitant the Western powers were to give almost anything um, initially. I mean, there were all sorts of very, very um, high level conversations taking place about what certain types of gun would mean, um, conversations about whether um, delivering any sort of um, things relating to aircraft would be considered enough of an escalation that Russia might, you know, uh, say that it was it was you know going to be conducting operations against behind Western borders. You know, there were all these kind of high level conversations taking place, and you see how things have moved forward, inched forward steadily, 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 and have happened in a way that actually hasn't led to that kind of nightmarish escalation that some feared. And I think that should be seen as a success of Western strategy. Whilst it has been slow, it has been effective and it has been coming gradually. So I think that's the other way of thinking about it is, yes, the delays are frustrating, but if you look at how far things have moved over a sustained period of time, then I think that even the Ukrainians admit that it's in a very positive direction, not least, of course, with the defensive apparatus that's been given, which is now proving highly effective in defending Kyiv from these Ukrainian drones. Some saying it's a 100% shoot-down rate. I mean, that's very, very significant. And yes, the tragedy is, of course, that it's taken time and many people have lost their lives as a consequence of that delay. But if you imagine, if we had been giving these tanks from day one, there would have been a very, very strong uh, feeling, I think, amongst um, many capitals in Europe that that was an escalation too far um, and that this would lead to to things perhaps potentially spiring out of control. Now, I would potentially challenge that analysis, but nonetheless, there were many, many who would have thought that at the time. So I think that's worthy of comment as well, is that we're painting this, as I say, as something that is a frustration and a failure. But in the broad terms, I think that there have been a lot of successes in this space. And indeed, there may well be reasons that are as yet uncertain to us why that delay is happening. And it may well be that there's these conversations conversations taking place, as I say, that are about unified agreement and unified action rather than it being one country doing it and then a drip, drip, drip. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think, you know, if you t- take stock of what, what's been what's in there now, if we'd done all that in a, in a, in a lump, then that would have been that would have been very significant. And, and who knows what could have happened? So, yeah, so arguably played a played a, a reasonable hand. Of course, this, this war has got a long way to go. But, um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a very fair it's a very fair point, and it—I mean—it was—it was echoed. But so your 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 suggestion that something needs to happen, it does need to move. Time is moving on; things need to move on this one way or the other. That was echoed last night in the brief I was in with the with the Western official who said that um, that someone well the, the official said quote someone needs to break the deadlock. This is the 
specifically about the provision of tanks and armoured personnel carriers, infantry fighting vehicles and other armoured armored vehicles. Someone needs to break the deadlock. Uh, and the, 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 um, the official was just making the point that was said that Ukraine will not be able to reclaim lost territory without changes to the force posture. And what they were suggesting, what they were saying was that it, it, at the moment it's so finely balanced. They said Russia has mass but very poor decision making. Uh, Ukraine has better decision making, better kit, but is much smaller. And comparatively, the strengths and weaknesses between the two are, are different, but they end up very finely balanced. Uh, the individual was saying that, that main battle tanks and armoured personnel carriers are going to be part of that mix to try and change that dynamic somehow. And just said that Ukraine will look to all partners for help not and won't be particularly worried where, where the stuff comes from. Um, Ukraine this is a quote, Ukraine needs a capability to help them give them, give them an advantage over Russia. Uh, one capability to contribute to offensive manoeuvre would be tanks and armoured personnel carriers. And asked specifically by one of my uh, colleagues, uh, in another another media organisation about the Ukrainian suggestion that they've said they need about two to three hundred tanks and around six hundred infantry fighting vehicles. Um, what was that? Was that a fair figure? The the Western official said it, it was not an unreasonable number to ask for from the from the Ukrainians. So that seems to be the kind of number that is doing the circle. So two or three hundred tanks, circa six hundred IFEs. Of course, last Friday. The US promised 50 Bradleys, Germany promised 40 Marders. Um, so, you know, quite a, a long way to go. But you know, those are the kind of, when you start getting down to actually numbers, I think I think that's, I think you're sort of fairly quite far through the decision-making process or, or there is there is political impetus and pressure that would be difficult to resist now, uh, I would suggest. Yes, I would agree with that. And is there anything else, Dom, happening in the military space? Well, I'll just I'll just rattle off another couple of um, couple of comments from the uh, from the Western official. Um, as I say, I'm not, I won't go into details about who he or she uh, was, and you take my word for it that I'm saying this individual was very well placed to be able to talk uh, on the security, diplomatic, and defence front. So, believe me or believe me or not. Um, so, on the attacks on Ukraine's critical infrastructure, the the official was saying that that Russia's strategy of um, well, Russia went for these waves of attacks, constant waves of attacks when they thought they had unlimited stocks or, or they thought or, and or they thought Ukrainian resolve would buckle quickly. Then when that didn't work, they went for this sort of 10 day pulse. And that seems to be where we're in at the moment. So every every week or 10 days, there's a massive uh, missile barrage from sea launch, submarine launched, air launch, ground launched missiles, drones and everything against uh, a, a, across Ukraine into Kiev principally, but across the whole country. That seems to be that seems to have been the norm for the last uh, month, maybe every 10 days or so, this sort of pulse. Um, now, there was there's been increasing time periods in between each of these barrages. Um, the, the official was saying that, well, well as we've said before, and as uh, Alexei Reznikov, Ukraine's defence minister, tweets regularly, um, stocks of missiles, particularly precision-guided munitions in the Russia's inventory, have been severely reduced. Now, at some point, this was the individual speaking, the, the Western official saying, at some point, they will have to adapt their strategy and go back to the drawing board. The strategy hasn't worked. The Ukrainian people have shown incredible resilience. Unquote. Now, I think that was quite strong, saying that, that they're going to have to go back to the drawing board and the strategy hasn't worked. I think that is, that is very strong. Um, te- I've not, not heard them go that, um, that far before. Just finally, uh, the official was talking about Wagner and it's thought that in terms of actual com- ground combat power in Ukraine right now, Wagner is assessed to make up up to a quarter of Russia's forces in the field. Now, that doesn't include mobilised people back in Russia, any other reserves. 
and of course the other areas of the Russian armed forces writ large. But in terms of ground forces in Ukraine, Wagner thought to uh, number about a, a quarter, of which tens of thousands are thought to be convicts. We know Yevgeny Prigozhin has been going around jails, emptying the jails or offering um, six-month service in Ukraine for Wagner, and that will be the, the end of their their sentence and a lot have signed up for that deal and a lot are now dead because of it but tens of thousands are thought to be convicts very poorly supported and very vulnerable uh, and just to echo what we've been hearing that there the official is saying that there is friction there's very very obvious friction between Wagner and the Russian Ministry of Defense and the wider Russian security architecture which was quite uh, which is quite telling um, and just finally, uh, the West, West official was talking about um, uh, the Shahid 136, the Iranian-supplied drones that, as you say, almost all of which are now being shot down when they are launched because they are low, slow. They're actually quite noisy, um, and you can you can you can see them if you if you are put onto them um, satisfactorily. And then all you need to do is fire a huge amount of ammunition at them. So the Gepard, the German-supplied self self-propelled. An air defence system, twin 35mm cannons that just blast a load of lead into the sky. Very good at knocking these things out. Equally, machine guns just uh, are, are very capable as well. So you just need to hit these things. Of course, they'll go bang when they land somewhere. But um, almost all of these Shahid attacks are being uh, are being knocked out now. And uh, the West officials were saying that whilst Russia has maintained stocks of Shahid 136, they are not game changers. Now Ukraine has become good at countering them, which speak exactly as you said there. They seem to have, um, it's always this sort of uh, one step, then the other side comes up with, another, with, with a countermeasure and then there's counter countermeasures. But at the moment, it looks as if uh, the air defence side is, is, is uh, Ukraine seems to be, or is in a much better place uh, and is in every with every day increasing the capability to counter that um, that that threat and as i said at the start of this the patriot systems that ukraine is going to be trained on in oklahoma from next week i mean that is going to be that's the i mean you'd never say an ultimate guarantor because something will always get through but i mean they're in a much better place now than they were just a few weeks ago and with every day they're getting better and better at countering that airborne threat Thanks, Dom. And I think another thing that's that's been on my mind is, of course, the Middle East at the moment is very uh, febrile, particularly Iran, given what's going on domestically there at the moment. And a, a question on my mind is what exactly Iran, apart from finances, are getting out of this relationship with Russia? Reputationally, geopolitically, there are a lot of ramifications from this for them. And I worry that they may well be receiving not only... The, the, the economic benefits, but also perhaps something in the nuclear space. I think that's important to be thinking about, given we know the nuclear ambitions of Iran and what that would do to them. And indeed, there's a real danger. And those who have been following Iran for a very long time say that this is a very, very acute moment for what could happen there as a consequence of, of say, for instance, that they were to be receiving, whether it be intelligence for building nuclear weapons or materiel, that, uh, you know, that would immediately spook the Israelis to the point that they may well make some kind of strike or something on on a nuclear site and then before you know it the global energy markets have been severed as a consequence of 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 the 
instability in the Middle East. That has big ramifications. And indeed, you might even have war in the Middle East between Iran and Israel, quite possibly. And I don't say this to be overly dramatic, but I say it to just say we're not actually, it's, it's not inconceivable. And of course, what we try and do on this podcast is talk about these broader ramifications. So I just mentioned that because I think also that's very interesting here is it's not really, but we've all been talking about how Russia benefits from the deal with Iran. But how is Iran benefiting from this deal with Russia? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, the only thing I'd add is, of course, the background or in the background is the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear deal that um, the West, led by the US, is, is trying to, to do with, with Iran to get Iran to, to stop enriching uranium and developing nuclear weapons. So if Iran now has something else that they are doing, supporting Russia, that's something, yet another thing that they're, they're potentially able to negotiate over or something else that they could throw on the table or, um, or hint at in any, in any future negotiations. I don't know. I've not heard that from, from diplomatic sources, but the JCPOA is in the background. It is extremely serious. As you say, you know, Israel are, are, are very energised about the whole um, enrichment of uranium. Uh, I think that's putting it mildly uh, in Iran. And so something else, another lever they can pull, Iran could pull uh, in the in the JCPOA area. I think they would they would be happy with that. And I think the Shahid 136 but the supply of, of drones to Russia is, is yet another another lever they can use. Yet something else to sort of muddy the waters or introduce into the diplomatic space to uh, to try and use as part of a wider negotiation. Yes, it's another example of how this this war in Ukraine is having worldwide ramifications. It's it's and actually something else I'd very much like to cover in a future episode is the Balkans. We've not really talked much about that, but actually there's a lot of concerns about increased tensions there. It, it leads in large part triggered by uh, by Russian influence in that region, and of course as. Europeans will know, indeed, is anyone around the world will know the Balkans have always been a, a concern for for Europe and it's how problems there can lead to very, very serious consequences on the world stage. So I think that's also something that we should be watching closely is that this war, as I say, is, is having destabilising influences all around the world. And so uh, no doubt we'll try and do a, a subject on that or a special episode on that in, in due course. Um, thank you very much, Don, for those updates. Uh, I think there's just a few diplomatic ones which I'll, I'll happy, I'm happy to whiz through. And, and do let me know if there's any thoughts that you have on any of these as well. And we can touch on those at the end. It's been a while since we've talked about Poland. So I wanted to start with them today. President Duda, who's their head of state, has met with some of his ministers, including the prime minister, to discuss security issues amid the war in neighbouring Ukraine, including Kyiv's request for Western-made heavy battle tanks. Now, I only mention this because I think it's indicative of the high-level conversations happening across the EU at the moment, which, of course, we've already talked about at length. I also wanted to mention Poland, though, because they have announced that the number of Ukrainians that have passed through them now, and this is according to their EU representative, is 9 million. So 9 million Ukrainians have crossed into Poland since the war began. And indeed, of course, it's important to say that some will have gone back. But nonetheless, that is an enormous number of people who have who have gone through Poland and I just think it's worth underlining that Poland have been despite 
this. And of course, when you have that number of people in search of food, in search of support, in search of places to stay, it's inevitably destabilizing. Their support of Ukraine has been steadfast since the war began, not least for the geographical reasons uh, and how close they are to Ukraine, but also for their shared experience with Ukraine under the uh, Russian yoke in the Soviet Union. Now, contrast their experience with another former Soviet state, Belarus, who I, of course, touched on yesterday and who we're keen to do a deep dive on at some point as well. They, their defence ministry has said today that joint Russian-Belarusian air defence forces have been reinforced with new missile units moved into position. Now, of course, as we've talked about at length, Belarus has been a very close ally of Russia and has allowed Putin to use its territory as one of the launch pads for its evasion. Indeed, there's considerable concern that they will seek to do so again on this possible offensive, re-offensive on Kiev uh, predicted this year. Now, Dom and I are both slightly sceptical about whether that would actually be feasible uh, for the Russians. But nonetheless, it is being very highly talked about by the Ukrainian military. So it's right that we we touch on that. Um, And so I think that's, as I say, something that we need to keep attention to, as I say, is what's going on with Russia and Belarus and how they are seemingly strengthening ties and the reasons why that may well be the case. Now, these are defensive air units, but nonetheless, they are keen to emphasise the close relationship that they have with each other at the moment. Another country that is engaged in high-level discussions with Russia at the moment are, of course, China. Now, I cited yesterday a long read in the Financial Times about the overtures that China is said to be making to European powers to repair their reputational damage from their support of Ukraine with some success, it had to be it has to be said, uh, particularly with uh, France and with Germany. Yet whilst they are doing that, they're keen uh, to as I say, continue the dialogues with Russia. And we've heard today that Russia and China are ready to resume mutual travel as soon as possible and deepen their strategic cooperation. That's according to China's ambassador to Russia, who reported that to the Russian state news TASS in remarks that were published earlier this morning. And I'll read the direct quote from the diplomat. In the new historical conditions, we are ready, together with our Russian friends, to continuously deepen comprehensive strategic cooperation, restore, restore mutual travel of citizens as soon as possible. They've also, of course, ditched the mandatory quarantines for arrivals and have allowed travel to resume across its border with Hong Kong since Sunday, removing the last of the major restrictions of zero COVID, which uh, they abruptly began dismantling after civil unrest in early December. So where does that leave us on China? Well, I think it's entirely possible that China is saying this publicly, yet lamenting Russia's actions in private. But there will be some who argue and are arguing that it should not be possible for China to be playing both sides like this, that if one supports Russia, then one should face economic and reputational consequences for the long term good of the war and the world. But at the same time, as I say, yes, as I mentioned yesterday, there are genuine concerns of severing China completely from the diplomatic stage and by necessity moving them closer to Russia and other hostile powers indirectly, which would, uh, well, would and could have dangerous ramifications further down the line. So 
that is, of course, another concern. But, uh, of course, there are many who are arguing that if you don't make it clear what it means to support Russia, that is more dangerous in the long term and will, of course, offer Russia a economic and political lifeline this year. Of course, it's always worth underlining that why why do countries like North Korea uh, still exist? It's because they're bankrolled by China, because they perceive it as being in their geopolitical interest. This is all incredibly complex, and it may take a, a Tolleyrand or a Metternich to, uh, to broker a diplomatic way out of this. But as I spoke about last week, as things stand, it does not seem to me that the West are being clear enough what the ramifications are of dealing with Russia. And that's a signal that's not just relevant for China, but also for Pakistan, India and African nations who are currently more sympathetic to Russian narratives. This really, really matters. And I think if China are really serious about re-engaging with Europe and the West in a way that they don't want to be seen as, as entering a block with Russia, then I think that at the moment they're going the wrong way about it by the kind of reports, as I say, that I've, that I've just summarised there. Now, of course... Energy is at the heart of all this. And there's an interesting report in Bloomberg today that Russia is losing $172 million every day due to oil price restrictions. Now, that lost profit will increase to $280 million per day when this restriction will be extended to oil products from the 5th of February. Flagship Russian oil is already sold below world prices by more than twice. European and British gas prices have fallen by almost 80% since the panicked buy in August. Indeed, capitalism has shown that it has been able to, tallied with the with the milder winter, has been able to combat the worst fears the market has adapted of those that we were talking about in the latter half of last year. So in a sense, the alarmist sort of saga over the energy price cap has, has abated somewhat. Although, of course, indirectly, particularly here in Britain, the government pursued what some will now argue was a needlessly harsh austerity in an attempt to counteract this. And that will have long term economic impacts uh, long down the uh, the line. Just also another interesting report from Morgan Stanley, which has said that industrial gas use in the EU is down by 27 percent in December. Again, that will be part and parcel of the um, milder weather, but also because of the strategy for counteracting the the concerns I just alluded to. Wind power has also come roaring back. Uh, there's a, been a fresh record here in the UK of 20.9 gigawatts on December the 30th. It's all Greek to me, but apparently that's very, very significant uh, and has alone generated 49% of Britain's total electri- electricity over the past week. Again, very important in, in terms of us cleaving ourselves away from some of our energy dependence that I talk about. So, yes, I uh, just wanted to touch on that before ending the diplomatic summary. And to end on a slightly lighter story, but one still important, of course, very important for Ukraine. Yesterday was the Golden Globes and Zelensky addressed them in in that. And he said, he tweeted out the clip. He said, this award was born at a special time. Of course, we're talking about the, Go- the Golden Globes. This is their 80th one, 80th anniversary. It started during World War Two. He said, World War Two was not over yet, but the tide was turned. All knew who would win. It is now 2023. The war in Ukraine is not over yet, but the tide is turning and it is already clear who will win. So the reason this is important is that this is, again, Ukraine 
trying to be on the cultural radar, trying to be as prominent as they were last year. This will be a continuous struggle. News cycles move on. And so I think it's absolutely right what President Zelensky is trying to do by appearing as, uh, to address as many parliaments as possible, as many media outlets as possible, and as many prominent global events like the Golden Globes as possible as well. This is a battle line for Ukraine in this war, as we have spoken about for many, many months now, and is as important in, as is taking place on the military field, one could argue, for the simple fact that it's what wins hearts and minds in the West and will enable them to receive the kind of support that we've talked about at length this week. So that's the updates in the diplomatic space. Dom, any thoughts on any of that or any final thoughts before we go today? Oh, just a final thought, uh, if I may. And yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was great to see President Zelensky at the Golden Globes. I mean, if ever there's a man with Golden Globes, he's the guy right now. Um, I just think we should keep an eye on, as a final thought, keep an eye, obviously, on Solidar, because it is very confusing around around that area. But also, more, more broadly, if Solidar is taken by uh, Russia, whether they, they, they take it or Ukraine make a tactical withdrawal and, and move out of there, then yeah, this will be lauded by Russia because they've been desperate, as we said, desperate for a success for four months. Now, what happens then? Does Ukraine turn around and say, if only we'd had three squadrons of, of Abrams, Challenger 2, Leclerc, Leopard, if only we'd had some infantry fighting vehicles, we could have done that. We could have had a mobile reserve. We could have pushed them back. If only we'd had this all-arms grouping of this heavy armour. I just wonder, I mean, Ukraine has, has, has not been glib in this in this war, I don't think, so far. And they've not tried to use their own uh, loss and sacrifice very in a crass way. But I just wonder if if this, with, given the, the head of steam behind this argument at the moment in the West about supply of heavy armour, if Solidar were to fall, I would not be surprised if there were, if it was, if it was communicated through the lens in Ukraine of if only we'd had heavy armour, we could have done so much more. And I just wonder if, let's say, let's say it does fall, if this Russian success actually turns out to be the one thing that really then turns the tide in terms of this big decision about heavy armour. And so, you know, Prigozhin, Putin, be careful what you wish for. Our views will by now be well known to regular listeners, but we are always keen to hear alternative viewpoints. In that spirit, last week, Stephen Edgington, video comment editor at The Telegraph, interviewed three experts about three possible scenarios concerning Russia's future. None of these scenarios are mutually exclusive, but each offers important reflections on the alternative sequences of events that could emerge in the coming months. To begin, Stephen spoke to Daniel Johnson, a British journalist who played a pivotal role on the day the Berlin Wall fell, and I really recommend listeners look up the story, it's quite incredible, about the scenario where Putin stays in power. Vladimir Putin reminds me very strongly of Ivan the Terrible. Ivan the Terrible was the man who created the Russian Empire, the Tsarist Empire, but with a great deal of cruelty and brutality, but quite effectively. And the point about Ivan was that he launched a war against what we now call the Baltic states, Livonia. And it went on for about 30 years and ultimately failed. He was defeated by a kind of 16th century Volodymyr Zelensky, who emerged in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and forced the Russians back to their borders. 
But Ivan survived that defeat. This is unusual for an autocrat. Most dictators who lose wars lose power quite quickly, if not indeed before the end of the war. Because popularity does matter, even in dictatorships. Putin has now lost most of the popularity he ever had. And he is already, I think, ruling by fear. If Putin loses all his gains since last February and, and Crimea too, then what we will probably see is not some kind of peace treaty, but a frozen conflict of the kind we've seen on Russia's borders under Putin several times before. How will Putin survive in power? It seems to me he has only one option if he is to survive, and that is to increase his terror apparatus on a completely different scale. Ivan the Terrible survived the loss of the Livonian War only by a year or two. He suddenly had a stroke while playing chess. And I would be surprised if Putin's reign after a failed Ukrainian war is a very long one. One problem for Putin in his survival will be that he has very few allies. Even Belarus is beginning to look a bit shaky. The only ally who has the power to really sustain him is, of course, China. And it's very noticeable that he's been cultivating Xi Jinping in recent weeks and months. The truth is that China has not come to Russia's aid and is very unlikely to do that unless the situation changes. Xi Jinping does not wish to be associated with a loser. A second scenario is that the Russian Federation collapses as a consequence of this war. To discuss this further, Stephen spoke to the renowned political scientist and Russia expert Mark Galliotti for his thoughts. I should add that Stephen has interviewed Mark in detail for another Telegraph podcast, Off Script, several times since the war began. And I really recommend listeners check those out for more of his really highly valued insights. In its own way, the Russian Federation is actually a surprisingly resilient beast. And although it's a sprawling one, 143 million people, 83 different uh, constituent elements, plus the six which have been annexed. But nonetheless, I think it's unlikely that we're actually going to see a kind of dramatic collapse. It's much more likely that what we will actually see is a slow almost invisible separatism emerging within, but for autonomy rather than actually people saying, no, we need to be independent countries. As we look forward, I think there's really two main concerns that I imagine is keeping people in the Kremlin awake at night on this. First of all is the sort of the short-term issue precisely about the costs of the war. Now, what we have seen is that the ethnic preponderance of forces is very, very much skewed towards poorer regions, which tends to mean non-Russian ethnic regions. Um, places like Dagestan in the North Caucasus, Buryatia over in the Far East. And obviously, more soldiers, you know, essentially representing the fact that these are poor regions where people join the military as an economic choice. But anyway, more soldiers in Ukraine means more casualties, more bodies coming back in body bags, and that sense that, in fact, it's not fair, that we are the ones fighting for Moscow's conflict. So I think that's going to be one, one of the interesting things to watch, is precisely the degree to which there is this narrative that emerges, as it did, for example, during the Soviet war in Afghanistan, that basically in our people, our region, our republic is disproportionately suffering. 
So that's a kind of a, an immediate con- and contingent issue. But the second big concern is just more the, the slow degradation of state capacity in Moscow. Putin is not doing his job. His key job is, after all, to balance off different elite groups. At the moment, he's so obsessed with the war that he's essentially not doing that. And we're seeing a lot of rivalries emerging. And those rivalries essentially create a degree of gridlock within the political system and a failure of control. And therefore, the, the, the less effectively the Russian Federation central government works, the more that the regions, firstly, will just have to do their own thing, and secondly, will have the opportunity to do their own thing. And therefore, and this again, this is something we saw in the late Soviet era, is precisely that, in fact, what you actually get is a kind of covert fragmentation of the country in which local elites become more and more powerful, more and more closely intertwined, more and more able to essentially pull the wool over Moscow's eyes as to what's really going on. And finally, Stephen spoke to Dr Chris Newton, military historian, about scenario number three, one not unfamiliar to our listeners, one where Putin is toppled. What might a coup look like in, in Russia? There's some sort of precedents in history. Perhaps the most likely, and this is not to say that this is definitely going to happen, but um, a likely scenario, if this were to happen, would be some of Putin's inner circle isolating Putin at, at, at some point, um, perhaps maybe when Putin is away and they manage to arrest him, maybe murder him or at the very least arrest him. And then what would happen would be the coup plotters would then try to take over the key state institutions, so the key government buildings, the parliament, the state media. They would then try and communicate what's happening to the public and try and get the, the public on side. And of course they need to make sure as well that they have the, the, the force to back their coup up as well. So they'd need some kind of military backup, the support of the military, the support of the security services, uh, and then they would try and consolidate support, deal with any resistance, and and try and win over the the public. What were some of Russia's uh, coups in history? Well, firstly, you have the the 1917 revolution, um, where the, the Tsar abdicated. The war was, the First World War was not going uh, particularly well and effectively the generals and uh, some of the Russian politicians as well you know convinced the Tsar that the the time was was now to to abdicate. Then you have the October 1917 revolution, you have Lenin and the Bolsheviks against the backdrop of a weak provisional government, again war was not going very well, continuing social problems and Lenin and the Bolsheviks stormed the Winter Palace and took over the the Russian uh, institutions um, and and eventually consolidated control. And then in 1991, you have the coup by the hardliners um, against Gorbachev. Gorbachev was on holiday in the Crimea and the hardliners attempted to arrest him and they tried to take over the uh, key institutions in Moscow, but Yeltsin was able to rally popular support against the coup and Gorbachev was, was able to return and the, the coup ultimately ended. And that paved the way for Yeltsin 
to, uh, to rise to power. Now, I would say it would take a lot for this coup to happen. Russia's already um, suffered humiliating setbacks, and it hasn't happened so far. So, um, and, and there's been lots of you know, problems and issues with, with the war. So, and Putin has constructed the Russian state to, to really try and prevent these things. We're very grateful to Stephen for those interviews. Before we go, I just wanted to respond to some listeners who've asked where David Knowles is. He's fine. He's recovering from a bad bout of pneumonia, but he hopes to be back soon. And thanks, everyone, for their warm wishes on Twitter. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, plus insights from our regular commentators on this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm weekday on Twitter Spaces. Just follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. And if UK politics is your thing, I'd recommend that listeners also check out Christopher Hope's podcast, Chopper's Politics, which at the moment, for obvious reason, includes a lot of commentary on what's going on in Ukraine with senior British political figures. As ever, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. We've noticed a really big spike in those recently. So thank you very, very much. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. We'll also try and respond to as many questions from you as we can on Twitter. And you can find our Twitter handles in the show notes for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.